welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 133, when we go back, back to, to the, the past. past and read a comic book from the guest year of publishing. You can find us every week on chrisandreggie.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by breeding a specific prehistoric fish, then waiting trillions of years for it to evolve into Chris and Reggie. Uh-huh. That's one way you can handle this this uh, thing. Uh, I think so. First of all, I want to apologize. We haven't had a new show in two weeks. Uh, the reason for that is you can hear it. I uh, had obviously what was the worst sinus infection of my life and uh, couldn't actually talk at all for several days. And uh, this is the best my voice has sounded in two weeks. <clears throat> but uh, so this particular comic was suggested by Get Fresh Crew member Alex Martin, who is on Twitter at Martinal Guy. Uh, and the comic is Indestructible Hulk number 12. Uh, had a cover date of October 23, published by Marvel Comics, written by Mark Wade, art by Matteo Scalera, colors by Val Staples, lettered by Chris Iliopoulos, cover by Mukesh Singh, variant cover by Michael Del Mundo, assistant editor was Emily Shaw, editor is par- Mark Panizia, editor-in-chief was Axel Alonso, and the cover price, $3.99 USD. It's a low price considering how long that credit list was. You, you got that. I guess they each got a quarter is how they, they there you go. that out. Uh, <laughs> so, of course, we'll start with our bios. Here's a fellow we've talked about before. Mark Wade, born March 21st, 1962, in Hueytown, Alabama. He was a voracious reader at an early age, and in 1966, Mark's dad brought home Batman number 180. Cover date was May, story is Death Knocks Three Times. This was the first issue out after the debut of Bill Dozier's Batman television show that starred Adam West. And uh, Mark was captivated by this comic, and he would begin collecting. This is around the time he was three years old. Uh, his family would move to Birmingham, and he would go to his fa- with his father to Radio Newsstand, which is a uh, where he bought all of his comics. This became his four color library from this point on. And from the age of three, he never stopped collecting. Not when he got older. Not due to girls. Nothing. You know all those excuses we have for walking exactly. away. Exactly. No pauses. He, apparently. he does not have those. Uh, now, before becoming a teenager, Mark used to read every comic book twice consecutively, then copy its pertinent information and the description of the story onto a three by five index card and file it away. His teenage life would be a little tumultuous, and he fought frequently with his parents. He would often spend long stretches of time crashing at friends' houses as a result. Then, in 1979, Mark watched Superman the movie, and he found this to be a life-changing experience. He actually sat through the movie twice in a row, and he left the theater with a strong belief in heroism. He says, Seeing Superman the movie changed my life in a fundamental fundamental and profound way and gave me a North Star that I've followed ever since. Now, Mark dreamed about being in comics, but didn't think that he wrote or drew well enough to qualify for any gig in the in the field. So, instead, he attended Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, which is a good school for journalism. But he stopped pursuing journalism when, quote, it dawned on me in about the first week and a half that I'd never, ever have what it takes to stand in front of a grieving widow and stick a microphone into her face. This he changed his major a few times, eventually settling on English with a minor in physics. But he didn't actually graduate. He's shy three credits, at least as of 2009. Uh, After college, he found work for Amazing Heroes and Comics Buyer's Guide. 
1984, D.C. editor Sal Amendola did a cross-country talent search. Mark was living in Dallas at the time and spoke with Amendola, who was looking for story pitches. Mark asked him which character hadn't been pitched yet. Sal replied, you know, of all the pitches I've gotten so far, no one's pitched a Superman story. Everyone wants to write Batman. No one's tried for Superman, and the editor, Julie Schwartz, is actively looking for eight-page stories. Since Mark already knew Julie through Amazing Heroes, and he was about to be in New York for the first time, he was able to set up an in-person meeting with Julie. He said, I offered him an eight-pager in which Superman goes to his Arctic fortress, only to find out that it's been stripped bare. Someone has burgled the joint. But who and why? Schwartz picked up the story, Wade's first professional, professional comics work. This was in Action Comics number 572, with an October 1985 cover date. This story is Puzzle of the Purloined Fortress. Very Silver Agey sounding story and title. Mm-hmm. Uh, the following year, Wade pitched thousands of stories. Uh, Schwartz bought one, and it was heavily edited by he and his assistant, Nelson E. Bridwell. Uh, we don't know what... what Story that was, though. And thus, his freelance comic book writing career was put on hold. And so, in 1986, Mark would move out to Los Angeles, and he would find work for Fantagraphics as an editor. And he says that the first day on the job, he had to fire the dude he was replacing, who uh, had no idea that he was on the way out the door. Uh, We jump to uh, spring of 1987, where Mark was packaging and editing his own magazine called Comics Week. He describes it as an industry news tabloid that was printed at roughly the size of a military parachute, but with more hot air. And Comics Week would last five issues. DC Comics publisher Jeanette Kahn noticed Comics Week and thought he might be a good fit for the brand new imprint Piranha Press. That deal would fall through. However, he was hired as an associate editor. He was 25 years old at the time by Dick Giordano. He would move from L.A. to New York for this one, and he uh, referred to this as his dream job, of which the first two days consisted of him erasing pencil lines on Green Arrow number one. Hey, someone's got to do it, I guess, right? Somebody's got to. Uh, now, uh, for two years, he primarily edited Secret Origins, the comic, and uh, made a lot of contacts. However, he would be fired from D.C. in 1990. Uh, He also, in his time there, edited Gotham by Gaslight, the uh, Batman Elseworlds story, which kicked off the Elseworlds imprint. After this, he would uh, remain with DC, but in a freelance capacity. He was a freelance writer. And his first work consisted of work for DC's short-lived Impact Comics line, where he wrote The Comet, and he scripted dialogue for Legend of the Shield. And uh, Impact were those MLJ Archie comics heroes that were uh, licensed by DC at the time. Yeah. Uh, in 1992, Wade was hired by editor Brian Augustine to write The Flash. And he took the gig and wound up staying on The Flash for eight years. Uh, now, though Mark and uh, Mike Waringo co-created Bart Allen, also known as Impulse, Impulse was launched into his own series in April 1995 by Wade and artist Umberto Ramos. Mark's first major project for Marvel Comics was as one of the writers of the Age of Apocalypse crossover. He later co-created the Onslaught character with Andy Kubert for the X-Men line. Marvel editors Ralph Macchio and Mark Gruenwald hired him as Gruenwald's successor as writer of Captain America, during which Wade was paired with artist Ron Garney. Their critically beloved run ended when Heroes Reborn happened. That was 98, I want to say. 96. 96? Okay, I was way off. Uh, Rob Liefeld offered Wade the opportunity to script Captain America over plots and artwork by his studio, but Wade declined. Wade and Garney returned to the title for another relaunch series, Captain America Volume 3, issue 
issues number 1 to 23. Famously, he left after butting heads with editorial over the content of issue 14. This was a story focusing on Red Skull, and changes were made to some of the verbiage used, which could be viewed as lessening their impact. He states, Despite what the error of having my name on the cover might imply, the contents of Captain America 14 aren't my work. The majority of the image descriptions and many of the early captions are my writing, but weeks after my story received approval from Marvel's editor-in-chief, and after the book was subsequently lettered, colored, read, and approved by several editors, separated, and made it ready to print That same editor-in-chief decided As within his rights Yet despite previous approvals To have the story completely altered And substantially rewritten Dropping entire sequences and pages And assigning several other pages To staffers to read dialogue from scratch As a result What was printed isn't even close to the story I set out to tell Nor was I asked for input In any of the alterations made He continues It is absolutely within Marvel's editorial right to make any and all changes to work for hire as they see fit, and I in no way challenge that right. They buy it, it's theirs to do with as they wish, with or without my input. It's upsetting and warrants the removal of my name only when Marvel editors renege on prior approvals without warning and do so while delivering to me a lecture, as if I'd done Marvel an injustice by writing an approved story, instead of even the vaguest hint of an apology or regret. To leave my name on a story no longer mine cheats the readers and cheats me, hence my insistence at distancing myself from the final printed version. Now, Marvel would remove his name from the credits, however, they did neglect to take it off that cover. Oops. And uh, the EIC he's talking about was uh, Bob Harris. Ah, they will tangle again. They will, they will. (laughs) Now, in 1996, uh, Wade and artist Alex Ross would produce the graphic novel Kingdom Come for DC. This was a pretty big deal, uh, and uh, Wade would go on to write the follow-up called The Kingdom. Uh, DC Comics writer and and executive Paul Levitz would say, Wade's deep knowledge of the hero's past served them well. And Ross's unique painted art style made a powerful statement about the reality of the world they built. Now, Wade, along with Grant Morrison, would collaborate on a number of projects that would successfully reestablish DC's Justice League to prominence. Uh, Wade would also write JLA Year One, as well as chunks of the regular ongoing JLA series. And uh, they also uh, developed the concept of hypertime together, which... Uh, Apparently they they did like on a napkin or something, or they were able to do it on a napkin. I heard something like that. Although, uh, as far as concepts go, developed is not one I would say uh, applies to hypertime, but that's okay. Uh, (laughs) They they came up with the idea. That's all there is. Uh, Wade was barred from working for Marvel for a time in 2000 after writing some disparaging comments about Bob Harris on a message board. To CBR, Mark commented, Yeah, that's at least temporarily true. Apparently, the fact that Bob was fired for unfair and wrong reasons one September rather than for all the tens of hundreds of right reasons he'd racked up in the seven years previous gave a lot of staffers a sudden change of heart. Amazing. Overnight, they forgot what a two-faced, cowardly liar Bob had been and what crap they'd all had to suffer through because of his shortcomings as a manager. Instead, everyone was lighting candles for Bob. Jesus, you want to know the truth? In my humble, cough, opinion, Bob did as much to help destroy the comic book industry during the 1990s than any other single human being alive. Yes, even more than Garib. I'd even let Ron Perlman out of hell before I'd pardon Bob. For years and years and years, the editorial philosophy at Marvel was to make each and every comic book as labyrinthine and confusing as creatively possible. Marvel had the single highest profile comic book in the Western Hemisphere, X-Men, 
and Bob did everything imaginable to make it completely incomprehensible and inaccessible to new and or casual readers. Everything. But Mark, I hear the whine. But Mark, Bob kept the X-Books bestsellers in the industry during his tenure. Technically true, but let's look at the sales figures. Over the last six years, the sales margin between the X-Books and their nearest competitors has dwindled from about 3 to 1 to barely 1.5 to 1. Woohoo! Cigars, everyone. Here it is in a nutshell. Did you see that stupefyingly atrocious piece of crap X-Men sampler comic in TV Guide? My rage had no words. It was a textbook example of how not to write and draw something a prospective first-time reader could possibly understand or enjoy or want to see more of. Hell, I've been reading comics for 34 years, and I had to read it three times to figure out what was going on. TV Guide. Eight million households. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for new market exposure. And everyone connected with it failed miserably. Fire them. Fire them all. We're dying here. We cannot afford to blow any opportunity to find new readers. Mm-hmm. Jump ahead to 2000, where Wade wrote a series called Empire, along with Barry Kitson. This was originally published by Gorilla Comics. Gorilla Comics was an imprint of Image Comics. It was formed by Kurt Busiek, Tom Grummet, Stuart Immonen, Carl Kiesel, Barry Kitson, George Perez, Mark Wade, and Mike Waringo. Now, this imprint folded after only two issues were published. Uh, it wasn't a very uh, long-lasting imprint. Oh, well. But... <laughs> Don't Cry for Empire, it was completed under the DC Comics label in 2003 and 2004. Uh, rights would revert to uh, Wade and Kitson in 2014, and uh, they did publish it on their own since then, either at IDW or Boom, uh, but it was under Wade's Thrillbent imprint. Okay. But uh, it did come out, and I think there might have been a uh, sequel to it as well, but I... Uh, I cannot say off the top of my head. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, Wade uh, began an acclaimed run as writer on Marvel's Fantastic Four. This was in 2002, and he had artist Mike Waringo with him. Uh, Marvel released their debut issue, which was Fantastic Four Volume 3, Number 60, at an October 2002 imprint, at a promotional price of $0.09. Cents. Wow. Now, uh, yeah, it's the, uh, one of the highest-selling, or I, I'm sure it's the highest-selling Fantastic Four comic ever. I bet. Uh, <laughs> now, by June 2003, Marvel publisher Bill Jemis tried to convince Wade to abandon his high-adventure approach to the series and make the book into, in Wade's words, a wacky suburban dramedy where Reed's a nutty professor who creates amazing but impractical inventions sues the office temp breadwinner the cranky neighbor is their new arch enemy etc and that definitely sounds like something bill jemis would yeah it sounds like marville basically <laughs> yeah it's marville and thunderbolts and all that stuff yeah. that he threw that wrench into uh now after some discussion with editor tom brevoort uh, wade found a way to make the requested changes however by then the decision had been made by vice president bill jemis to fire Wade and Rorengo from the series. Wow. Years later, Mark had this to say. Bree Vort and I were just gobsmacked by this. Just speechless. And there was no arguing with Bill. He wanted the mundane four because they'd be more relatable. But he was the boss. And Marvel owns the characters, not me. So he actually took a stab at trying to give Bill what we thought he wanted without destroying the FF. We planned a story arc in which Reed had been forced to brainwash the entire family, including himself, into this basic scenario for reasons I forget. It was actually a pretty elegant workaround. I can't remember the details, but I promise it was better than it sounds. 
But Bill decreed that it was too little, too late. Three days later, it was too late. And one Friday, poor Brevoort called me to tell me that I didn't have to bother with the next script because Bill had already written it himself and dropped it on his desk. I was fired. I had never been fired off an assignment before. I was stunned. Artist Mike Wieringa was asked if he'd stick around, but in a gesture I thanked him for till the day he died, he told Jemis to take a hike. The resulting fan backlash led to Wade and Wieringo's reinstatement on the title by that September. In 2003, Wade wrote the origin of the modern Superman with Superman colon birthright with art by Laniel Francis Yu. Uh, this was the standing origin for the Man of Steel for all three years. Mm-hmm. And then Jeff Johns, along with, I think, uh, Donner, uh, told us his secret origin. So. Yeah, but I think uh, that one that one stayed in uh, in 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 vogue for I think two years until the next one. Oh yeah, well, I mean, maybe I, three I years after that, I'm, the not, next sh- I'm not sure what origin we're working with now, anyways. So. <laughs> I couldn't tell you if I were if I a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Uh, now, well, Wade would return to DC and he would write the Legion of Superheroes in December 2004. He would team here again with Barry Kitson, and he'd actually be the editor writer for Le- Legion of Su- Superheroes back in the 80s, and uh, his run finished with issue number. 30. That was a July 2007 cover date. Uh, Mark had also been writing the Victorian detective story Ruse. This was for CrossGen Comics and uh, CrossGen would go bankrupt in 2004. Uh, Wade would have this to say in 2009 about uh, the publisher of CrossGen. It says, uh, CrossGen publisher Mark Alessi was a spoiled 8-year-old with a checkbook and he was the biggest bully I ever met in my life. And coming from a lifelong comic book geek, that's one hell of an indictment. I can make a fortune charging his employees for post-traumatic stress syndrome therapy. He would, and I'm not joking, make admittedly spineless grown men stand in the corner when they displeased him. He'd punish guys who drew perfectly well without his help by focusing on some detail or another on one of the 22 pages, some face that somehow wasn't exactly what he saw in his head, whatever the hell that was, by berating them at the top of his lungs and then sending them home for the day. And don't come back until you draw it right. He doesn't hold back, does he, Mark? No, no, he he's, doesn't. He's not one to, to bite his tongue over here. Mm-mm, mm-mm. In 2005, Wade signed a two-year exclusive contract with DC Comics. He co-wrote the 52 limited series with Grant Morrison, Jeff Johns, Greg Rucka, and Keith Giffen, who did the plotting. Years later, Mark would say of 52, the biggest challenge of 52 was actually wisely kept from us by editor Steve Wacker. Editor-in-chief Dan DiDio, who at first championed the concept, hated what we were doing. H-A-T-E-D-52. He would storm up and down the hall, telling everyone how much he hated it. And Steve, God bless him, kept us out of the loop on that particular drama. Editor Michael Siglane, having less seniority, was less able to do so. He took over the series. Wacker actually left in the middle of the series. He went to Marvel, Went yeah. to Marvel, and he's talking about the guy that picked up the rest of it. Uh, editor Michael Siglane, having less seniority, was less able to do so. And there's one issue of 52 near the end that was written almost totally by Dan and Keith Giffen because none of the writers could plot it to Dan's satisfaction, which was in his prerogative as editor-in-chief, but man, that's a little more, there's a little more demoralizing than taking the ball down the one-yard line and then being benched by the guy who kept referring to Countdown as 52 done right. After this, he did a short run on Brave and the Bull with George Perez and returned to The Flash for six issues. He said... 
Once I committed to the project and we'd solicited the first issue, before even one script was finished, every single promise that had been made to get me back aboard was reneged upon. So integrity and backbone demanded I quit on principle before the first issue even came out. The only reason I stayed six was because of my loyalty to my editor, who didn't deserve to be screwed. And Wade fairly well stopped working for DC Comics at this point. Mm-hmm. He would begin his series Irredeemable for Boom Comics, where he would become editor-in-chief in 2007, also move on to cre- chief creative officer in 2010, and then he would step down from that uh, four months later to get back into freelance writing. Uh, he started up the digital-only site Thrillbent.com in 2012, beginning with his follow-up to Irredeemable called Insufferable. Uh, to a question from Chris Sims as to why he was doing digital comics, Mark would say... I'm not positing that print should should just die or go away. I am saying, as I have been, have a, uh, as I've said, been, oh boy, as I have been for over a year, that unless you're, say, Brian Vaughn or Bendis or someone else who's already proven to comic shops that you can move non-superhero fare, print first, create your own floppies and graphic novels are a huge risk. And I hate them for using the word floppy. There. Yeah, I beat uh, <laughs> Printing prices are a gargantuan bite of your budget at the at typical direct market print runs, even for big name creators. Even to print through image as a creator, you have to be willing to work for back end money or to fund staggering initial costs. There's no way for me or anyone with less of a track record than I have to launch two or three new creator owned books into the marketplace as it is right now, especially non cape material, and not go bankrupt by issue three. I also hate calling superheroes capes. Yes, I yeah, it's, come on, Mark. <laughs> uh, now, also in 2013, after famously having addressed the crowd at the 2010 Harvey Awards about digital comics eventually repra- replacing print, Mark walked back his comments. He says, Several years ago at a conference for comic book publishers and industry stalwarts, when comicsology was still an upstart and iPads were still a toy, I came out aggressively against the old ways. I wasn't the first to do so, but I am loud. I rallied hard. And that we should that we should all be turning our attention to the emerging digital market, and that as an industry we couldn't continue to be held hostage by our only significant print distributor, America's 1,800 maybe comic specialty stores. I argued that tablets and smartphones were the new newsstand, the new outreach tool. As the vast majority of publishers and retailers turned on me for preaching heresy and descended upon me like a fat kid on a chocolate cake. I maintain that the old ways were doomed to die more quickly than we could imagine, and that the future of the comics medium hinged on digital distribution. And you know what? I was wrong. Hey. Hey, in all honesty, the old ways weren't doomed. Had you told me three years ago that comic sales in America would be up by a significant numbers when all other forms of print media were shedding readers at a brutal pace, I'd have been the first, I'd, I'd been the one to call you a heretic. Yet, here we are. Yeah, look at that. Uh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> beginning around 2007, Mark Wade totally stopped working for DC Comics over increasing editorial problems, primarily with Dan DiDio, and moved over to Marvel exclusively, writing acclaimed runs of Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, and Daredevil, and the Indestructible Hulk, of which we'll read an issue today. Uh, he'll, just to wrap him up, since it is pretty much current. Uh, We're he here also, now, yeah. Yeah, he, he also writes Archie and another follow-up to uh, Irredeemable called uh, Insufferable, which is out from Boom and Thrillbent.com. And uh, he, he, let's face it, he does pretty much write whatever he wants, whenever he wants, except he won't be writing for DC until Bob Harris and probably uh, Dan DiDio 
move on or to other sailing. pastures, yeah. yeah, whatever happens. <laughs> uh, now, across the table, we have Matteo Scalera, born 1982 in Parma, Italy. In 2008, Matteo was one of 12 winners of Chester Quest, an international talent search held by C.E. Sabolski for Marvel Comics. His professional career started in 2008 with the publication of Hyperkinetic, a four-issue series by Image Comics with a July to October cover dates written by Howard M. Shum. He's also worked on Dynamo 5 in 2010, written by Jay Fairber, a comic created by Fairber and Mahmoud A. Asrar, and the anthology comic Pop Gun, both of those for Image Comics. In 2010, Scalera began working for Marvel, mainly on their ever-expanding Deadpool lines. Deadpool Team-Up, Deadpool Core, and Deadpool colon Merc with a Mouth. Mateo continues to work for Marvel on a variety of books. Uh, he penciled eight issues of Veil and the Outcast. Those had December uh, 2011 to July 2012 cover dates for Boom Comics. In 2014, Matteo penciled issues of Batman Beyond and Batman for DC Comics, and he's probably best known for co-creating Black Science with Rick Remender for Image Comics, which concluded at its 38th issue with the September 2018 cover date, so that just ended fairly recently. Mm-hmm. But before that, he drew the issue we're about to read and much of this series. Mm-hmm. But what is this indestructible Hulk? We're, we're familiar with the incredible, but yeah. what about the indestructible? Now, in the wake of the Avengers vs. X-Men event, Dr. Bruce Banner makes a deal with Maria Hill, who was then director of S.H.I.E.L.D., and uh, she made deals with everybody because she was in everybody's comic. Oh, yeah. Uh, most of the time. Yep. Now, uh, Bruce has come to terms with the fact that he'll never be cured of his hulky condition, but perhaps he can make himself an asset. Dr. Banner is also annoyed that the Tony Starks and Reed Richards of the world will be remembered for their contributions to science, while he'll mostly be remembered for smashing stuff. Mm. Promising to use technology that will detect when he's about to hulk out, Dr. Banner proposes to Maria Hill that they fund his scientific research. The results of said research will help humanity and S.H.I.E.L.D. And he'll also lend Hulk's unpredictable smashy talents to specific S.H.I.E.L.D. missions along the way. Uh, As a down payment, Bruce Banner shows Maria Hill a water purification system that will clean all waterborne diseases worldwide within five years. He promises to come up with an invention like this every single week. That's a bit tall order there, buddy. Let's It is. Uh, Banner, just to, for a little insurance, Banner also blackmails Maria Hill to do as he wants, or his death will trigger the release of a stack of government secrets held by an outside man. That's never really a good idea to blackmail S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, we do eventually learn that this outside contact is Matt Murdock, otherwise known as Daredevil. Uh, this arrangement works pretty well for everyone, though, and S.H.I.E.L.D. even brings on four assistants at Banner's request. He ensures that each of them has a secret to hide, just like he does. Though everyone knows he's the Hulk, uh, indeed a major part of the assignment for these interns is to be close to the Hulk for different reasons, so I'm not sure what secret he thinks he's hiding. Uh, Hulk takes out an AIM installation and murders its leader. Uh, Maria Hill's quite alright with that. Banner and his team head to Asgard to mine for some spooky minerals, and uh, they get stuck there for a little while and befriend Thor from before he took over the body of Donald Blake, so it's like an ancient Thor. Yeah. Uh, the Hulk teams up with Daredevil for a couple of issues to take Baron uh, Zemo and some Hydra agents down. Uh, Zemo uses a sonic weapon stolen from S.H.I.E.L.D. because 
why else would Daredevil be there? There's, you know, it's got to be a <laughs> sonic weapon sonic. of some yeah. kind. <laughs> now, in the issue before the one we're about to read, Maria Hill tries to get a hold of Bruce. However, he's on a shield mission, beating up some sons of the serpent terrorists at the airport. Uh, when the airport and its inhabitants mysteriously vanish, the problem kind of sorts itself out, and Hulk sends the sons of the serpent guys to Dreamland. The serpents tell the Hulk that they have no idea what the heck happened when a military helicopter appears from out of nowhere. The Hulk jumps on board, ejecting all the passengers, all of them already desiccated, long, long dead corpses. Back at S.H.I.E.L.D., Maria Hill tells Bruce Banner of time anomalies happening in the wake of Marvel's Age of Ultron event. Evil android Ultron attacked humanity from the future and must be thwarted in the past and in the present. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, I remember that one. That was a that was a weird Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> now, the ending result, aside from the inclusion of Miles Morales in the regular Marvel Universe and the eventual death of Wolverine, is that the timeline is going completely wacko. Uh, using a tachyon radio developed by Dr. Banner, Banner uh, Maria Hill sent Agent Goodard into the time stream to check for any leaks or worn threads. He comes back dead. Each of his body parts aged or de-aged to create a gross-looking, kind of a metamorpho corpse in a way. Yep. Very weird. Uh, Hill further explains that the helicopter that appeared earlier disappeared over the Philippines 70 years ago. She notes that while the chopper looked new, the crew had clearly aged. Maria takes him to a special branch of S.H.I.E.L.D. called Temporal Irregularity Management and Eradication, or... Time... Mm-hmm. There, the government agency is keeping a prisoner, a time traveler named Zarko the Tomorrow Man. Uh, this is a character created by Stanley and Jack Kirby that first appeared in Journey into Mystery number 86, November 1962, cover date. He was a civil servant from the 23rd century who took a time machine back to the past <clears throat> uh, for kicks and to tangle with Thor, primarily. Zarko, who has been in prison longer than he's operated as a villain, says that time is broken. Banner and Hill can't tell because they can't see into the fourth dimension. A peek through Zarko vision shows Bruce and Maria wearing different sets of period-correct clothing, so that's a, a fun side that's effect. That's cute. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Uh, Zarko says that a, a group of men calling themselves the Chronarchists? That's not good enough. Chronarchists, sure. Chronarchists uh, are exploiting the problems that the time stream is currently having. Indeed, their meddling is creating more problems and more opportunities for their evil ways. Banner suggests that the Hulk w would only create more issues and that the more cerebral Red She-Hulk would fit the bill better here. You know, when no one knows who Red She-Hulk is in this timeline, Bruce knows things are dire. Who is Red She-Hulk, anyway? Do you really want to know? Not really. Okay. <laughs> uh, when Bruce Banner realizes that memories of his ex-wife Betty Ross are beginning to fade, he snaps into action. Banner is set up with some time armor and a floating robot with Bruce Banner's personality uploaded into it. This is in order to goad the Hulk into remaining the Hulk, as well as keep the mission on focus. And make it very convenient for Banner to talk to his Hulk counterpart. Mm -hmm. uh, Maria Hill punches Dr. Banner in the face, forcing him to switch to the Hulk. And then, the big green man and the robot head back to Arizona, the year 1873. And now we get it right into Indestructible Hulk number 12 uh, The cover is actually a pretty wild picture of the Hulk riding a green and pink dinosaur 
Uh, the characters Kid Colt, Two-Gun Kid, and Rawhide Kid are lashed to the sides of the beast. And we'll hear more about these guys in a moment. Uh, they're tearing through some green jungle, and to be frank, uh, the whole cover is just too green, if I can do a little composition uh, critique yeah. right here. Uh, I know green is sort of the Hulk's thing, but everything in this image is kind of blending together. They needed a little more uh, something else in there, orange or something. Yeah, a contrast, A yeah. little bit of a contrast, yeah. I mean, the, the title is green and the, the Hulk and everything. <laughs> Otherwise, this cover is uh, is the normal cover dress of the time, a red bar at the bottom with all the pertinent issue information. And this one informs us that the issue is part of Age of Ultron, colon, Aftermath. Mm-hmm. Now, the title page has credits and a recap, which is a nice option, but we've already handled all that just yeah, a few that. minutes ago. <laughs> uh, so our story begins where we left off, A.D. 1873. The floating Bruce Banner robot would narrate the scene for us. I am Dr. Bruce Banner, at least an aspect of him. Me. It's complicated. My consciousness has been backed up into a floating monitor robot. So as you can imagine, I'm having a hard enough time maintaining a sense of self without having to identify these three from memory. You wouldn't believe how many times this unit tried to scratch its poor phantom butt. Oh, God, I'll tap it like a hundred times. Mm-hmm. In three long panels, we see three old-style cowboy types. The first is wearing a mask, and he has, he has his guns out. All of them are looking at something just beyond the reader. Their mouths are open in horror. Fortunately, the research I did in prepping for this mission, where we were going and who we were likely to encounter, compensates for any history classes I failed in college. The cowboy in the mask called, I suppose, calls, calls himself the Two-Gun Kid. Right. So uh, because nothing in comics can ever be simple, the character known as Two-Gun Kid had a series that ran in two parts and has been played by more than one alter ego over the years. Now, the first iteration was the blonde-haired Clay Harder, who uh, first appeared in Two-Gun Kid number one that had a March 1948 cover date by Lee and Kirby. His backstory, uh, well, there really isn't much to it. He was a ranch hand or a cowboy, depending on the story, who would put on his mask and ride into danger with two guns blazing whenever he would overhear conspiring criminals, which was always. Uh, hmm. The version ran for about a year, ten issues in total. The character then appeared in Atlas's Western anthologies during the early 1950s, before getting a second chance with Two Gun Kid number 11 with a November 1953 cover date, and this would run until issue number 136 that had an April 1977 cover date. Now, at the beginning of the Marvel Age, Stan and Jack decided to brush up uh, the Two Gun Kid for the superhero craze, since the character was essentially a masked hero already. And so, in Two Gun Kid number 60, November 1962 cover date, they retconned Clay Harder, so he was a pulp magazine creator. Matt Hawk is a lawyer from Boston, Massachusetts, who was inspired by the tales of the two-gun kid to commit similar deeds in the on the American frontier. With his horse Thunder, his partner Boom Boom Brown, and a pair of pistols, he becomes one of the West's most prolific heroes, often teaming up with the Rawhide Kid, Kid Colt, or the Phantom Rider. In more recent years, it turns out Matt Hawk's real surname is Leibowitz, and uh, we have really have no comment on no that. No comment on that. That seems like a uh, sticky wicket, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bannerbot narrates again, the one in the middle is Kid Colt. 
Kid Cult was a character who's comic, Kid Cult, uh, for four issues, and then Kid Cult Outlaw, for the remainder of its run, had a whopping 229 issues that ranged from cover dates August 1948 through April 1976. Now, his story is he's, in, he's unjustly accused of murder. Uh, this Blaine Cult, he's on the lam, and he helps folks in need along the way. In Heroes Reborn, colon, Young Allies Number 1, January 2000, cover date by Fabian Niciasa and Mark Bagley, Kid Cult is reimagined as a human-horse hybrid superhero. This point doesn't come up in this issue, and uh, Marvel seems reticent to uh, bring this version of the character back, so uh, we probably already said too much about it. Probably, yeah. They've they've played with these Western heroes a little too much for my taste, Mm -hmm. I gotta say. Uh, (laughs) Batterbot says again, and the one in leathers... Man, they were big on the name Kid in the Old West. Is the Rawhide Kid. Now, the Rawhide Kid debuted in a 16-issue series that ran from March 1955 through September 1957 cover dates, written by Stan Lee and drawn by Bob Brown and Dick Ayers. Covers were provided by Joe Manili, uh, John Severin, Russ Heath, and others. Uh, originally a nameless outlaw unjustly hunted by the sheriff who commits good deeds while scramming from the law. Now, here's another property that was dusted off by Stan and Jack, which continued its numbering where it left off, issue number 17, with an August 1960 cover date, and gave him some backstory. The last remaining member of the Clay family after a Cheyenne raid, Johnny is raised by Texas Ranger Ben Bart on a ranch near a town called Rawhide. This was a freewheeling slapstick kind of book with lots of wild action and quips being thrown around, sort of like Spider-Man as a Western character, and it lasted to issue number 151 with a May 1979 cover date. But that wasn't the last we saw of this fella. Uh, we got a five-issue miniseries. This is Rawhide Kid, Volume 3. It ran from April through June 2003 cover dates by Ron, Z- Ron Zimmerman and John Severin, and uh, the subtitle was uh, Slap Leather. This was published by Marvel's Mature Audience's Max imprint, and this one reimagined the character as a, as a homosexual so stereotypical that evangelical Christianity had to formally apologize to RuPaul. A citation needed. Yeah, not a, uh, couldn't find me back, but yeah, I think that's what happened. Once again, this particular retcon doesn't factor into this story, and uh, we'd certainly rather not talk about it anymore. So uh, we're just going to move right back into the story. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 this makes me think also of, of uh, Extrano, right? Or uh, oh yeah, Extrano. You know, it's, it's like the, these early attempts to bring in, uh, you know, homosexual characters. They weren't. They were might have been high minded, but. I'm, I don't know that this one was, though. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, you know, this whole thing was, it's a little crazy. Anyway, uh, Batterbot says, To their eyes, the Hulk and I erupted out of thin air, a floating metal gizmo and a rampaging green giant. And yet, that is not what has their eyes bugging out. What they're gaping at is the fight with the dinosaur. And there's Hulk in his time stream costume punching a dinosaur in the face. I think it's an Allosaurus. Hmm. We, we we covered those a few weeks ago when dinosaurs attacked. That's right, we did. <laughs> <laughs> now Kid Colt is there and he goes, Lord Almighty, what kind of loco weed we been chewing? No loco weed. Listen, I know I look like a floating anvil to you, but I can think and speak, and the green one can hit. It's crucial you tell me how a dinosaur ended up in this day and age. And a mighty good morning to you, Mr. Floaty Helmet. Yeah, really. Hello. <laughs> nice introduction. Uh, the two gun says... Two-Gun Kid says, you're asking us. All we know is that we've been shumming for help. Just over the next hill is a little mining town named Silver Rock, where where here tell come a weird owl hoot done made himself sheriff last week. 
They say he's one powerful hombre, and that he uses for muscle the biggest, meanest, ugliest horses anyone ever did see. Now, while Two-Gun Kid narrates, we can see this weird owl hout. Uh, owl, owl hoot? Owl, owl hoot. hoot. You never heard owl of owl hoot. Little owl. <laughs> it's, it's a big uh, blue grinning guy on the back of a triceratops. Behind them is a stegosaurus. Uh, these would be the mean, ugly horses we, we gather, right? Yeah, these have to be those horses, yeah. We didn't believe that, Hokum. Still don't want to, but I got two sharp eyes that are right now making one convincing argument. But yeah, uh, he's gonna have to taste the dinosaur to be positive. To be honest, that's usually the what you have to the do. The last sense you need, yeah. <laughs> Rawhead goes to you. I figure this is just some plum crazy nightmare. This is not going to convince you otherwise. That hombre is a rogue time traveler here to change history for his own benefit, and my friend is here to stop him. Didn't we just have, like, a recap page to handle all this exposition? Yeah, I thought we should know all this already. I thought so. I don't like his odds. But I am a gambling addict, so I'll take him anyway. Take him, sure. He'll be okay. And then Batterbot somehow thinks to himself, long as I keep him angry. Hulk takes care of the dinosaur off-panel. Uh, we do get to hear a splutch, and we see a bit of a splatter, so eh. yeah, guess that's good enough. There. Yeah. Not bad, Hulk. You think you can handle more like that, or are you too weak? Hulk never weak. Your insults, however, are pretty lame. Really, really. Batterbot says, good, then we ride. And they do. Uh, they're all Western characters anyway, so that's kind of what they do. Yeah. Uh, Hulk runs, and the robot floats nearby. Batterbot narrates to say, so far, our aim is true. The dossiers said that one of the first chronarchists could be found in Silver Rock. We know the who, the where, and the when, just not the why. Or the how, though we probably wouldn't understand if you explained it to us. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> Meanwhile, that chronarchist who declared himself sheriff named Tuck Balthazar is subjugating his townsfolk. They're supplying his dinosaurs with large quantities of food. Yeah, Tuck goes, Mmm... What did you call this? Uh, the cook says, p -p -p pork and beans. Really tasty. A woman says, we appreciate the compliment, Sheriff Talk. Truly we do. But if you could see fit to share some. Yeah, a boy with messy hair goes, we're so hungry. <laughs> now, now, what do I keep telling you? Food is for laborers. That's how it'll be in the century I come from. And that's how it'll be here. Of course, if you'd rather work at the mine like the men. And suddenly, a bearded guy bursts onto the scene. As he goes, Sheriff! Sheriff! We got company! It's Hulk and the Western heroes running up on the town. Well, now, the Hulk. How unexpected. He's rather displaced in time, but then again, time is broken. That's what makes my presence possible. No matter, my pets will handle the jade giant, and my deputies will deal with his posse. So, Tuck lets loose a pterodactyl, which grabs Hulk by the arms and swoops him away immediately. Then three creepy-looking, white-eyed guys show up with their guns drawn, and these would, I assume, be the deputies. Probably. Rawhide goes, three on three? Hardly a fair fight. 
Take them down, then we'll help the green. <laughs> the deputies let loose <laughs> an impossibly rapid volley of bullets. This drives our heroes back and behind some cover. Two-Gun Kid says, If this is you still dreaming, Rawhide, I wish you'd wake the hell up. Colt goes, Thunderation! Them fellas are walking Gatling guns. How are we supposed to outshoot them when they're moving? It's too quick to see. Got any more of that loco weed left? I think we could use it. (laughs) Smoke them if you got them. High in the sky, a pterodactyl carries a struggling Hulk. Over a series of panels, Hulk punches a snot out of the dinosaur and falls to the ground. Big, stupid bird. Batterbot narrates, Zarko told me as much as he could about our foe, but either his data was incomplete or I ran out of study time. Or maybe you just weren't paying attention. You know, a lot of excuses from this robot, let me tell you. Right? Doc Balthazar, a criminal scientist from the 23rd century. Because the time stream is broken, it was not self-corrected tendencies. What Doc does here will cement the future forever. Or until the le- the next uh, line-wide reboot. So, the next few months is what you're saying. If we're lucky, if we're lucky. <laughs> His actions will cause this entire state to be eternally uninhabitable, which accounts for the airport that suddenly faded from existence in my time. But how? What is he doing here? Maybe he just likes traditionally cured beef jerky. I can understand it. It's delicious. He came to a mining town. After he made a stop in the Jurassic Age, just to grab dinosaurs, or what has he done to the miners he made into deputies? Why are they moving at super speed? Think! What does it all add up to? Think! This guy is working on the worst reboot of Cadillacs and dinosaurs we've ever seen. (laughs) Elsewhere in our town, our gunslingers are still hiding, and the deputies are coming up on them fast. Here they come! Faster than I can pray! The deputies peel bullets from their guns that eat away at nearby wooden structures. I'm out of cover. You? What the hell is there left to hide behind? Just then, the Hulk makes landfall, and he immediately flings the deputies away. Far away, in fact. (laughs) Uh, As they land unconscious, the deputies rapidly age to the state of white-haired old men. As the deputies pass out, another piece of the puzzle snaps into place. When they instantly age ten years. My god, that's it. Hulk is now pummeling a velociraptor or a similar dinosaur. Yeah, Talk Balthazar watches this uh, fighting, amused. Keep fighting, Hulk. This is great fun. And I can call forth an infinite number of sparring partners. Uh, come to think of it, you want to take this act on, act on the road? What do you say? <laughs> Hope not afraid of you. He ought to be. Doc's spreading a radiation that hyperclocks the metabolism. Hulk can't stop it. What's our play? See that glowing panel on Tox armor? You strike it hard enough, it might destabilize. Do that. It's really lucky that there's a glowing panel on his armor. It helps. It does help that it glows. (laughs) Now, the Bruce Banner robot then turns uh, its attention to Hulk. And you, what a failure. You left the biggest dinosaur alone. Figures you'd be scared. Hulk, never afraid. Easily manipulated, sure, but never afraid. (laughs) Then follow me, you big baby. And uh, Batterbot again thinks to himself, I have to admit the taunting part is fun. Maybe you're just a jerk. It's like his chance Uh, to be a bully. He's taking it. 
<laughs> With that, the robot just sort of leads Hulk away from the dinosaur fight and talk Balthazar. Even talk looks a little confused by what's just happened. Yeah, he was having a good time. Like, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> Off to the side, the Western heroes have secured themselves in an alleyway behind stacks of barrels. Uh, this sure feels familiar to me. Doesn't this look a little like bit. A yeah. little bit. I didn't get half of what that flying whatchamacallit was spewing. But I think he said the best shot among us ought to take aim and fire. Will do. You? Neither one of you could shoot a marble into a peach basket. Sad, you want to strike hard? Reckon we all three got to hit the target together. Damn lucky thing that the thing's slightly larger than a peach basket, yeah. isn't it? Uh, now, at that moment, Hulk and the Bruce Banner robot are at the actual Silver Rock Mines. Uh, they look very elaborate, uh, more Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom than one might expect. I mean, from really, these are some sort of crazy mines, but mm-hmm. Bannerbot says, We can go back to talk if we have to. Priority one is to evacuate and permanently bury this mine, because the radiation readings I'm getting bear out my theory. That's not silver. Not anymore. Hey, you know, I bet that's why they called it Silver Rock Mine. Yeah, because it was silver. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh. Tox dinosaurs were a clue. He stopped in prehistoric times before coming here, but not to gather pets. No, he infected the silver vein with an alchemical virus designed to, over millions of years, transmute the silver into an ally that can power time travel on a massive scale. Would it be enough power to time travel past this story? <laughs> it's getting pretty silly here. <laughs> uh, then uh, Batterbot says, If Hulk doesn't seal and bury it, not only will Tok gain supreme power over time, but this whole area will never return to normal. And that would be a shame, because uh, there's an awesome uh, Buffalo Wild Wings spot there in the present day. Oh, yeah, I love that, you know. Good. Mm-hmm. I hate for us to lose one of those, to be honest with you. It's true. It'd be a, a very a tragic day. Uh, the pink floating robot leads Hulk to the, into the mines with promises of a bigger dinosaur. Along the way, Hulk bumps into the walls like the clod that he is, knocking down supports and preparing the place for mayhem. You lie. Hulk see no dinosaur. It's down here, you coward. What's wrong? Too tight a fit? Hulk makes it fit. Uh, as Hulk changes, uh, charges into the mines, some of the miners inside, you know, they start freaking out. I mean, understandably so. Shouldn't they have evacuated this place first? You know what I mean? Like that, that would be the number one thing. One of the miners goes, holy! Another one says, run, everybody out! Metal thing, stop teasing Hulk! Why? Does it make you mad? And from their hiding spot in the alley, the three amigos prepare to take their shots. We still got the drop on them. Together on three. And then a triceratops shows up behind them and lets out a big... My my dear sweet Susie. They jump out from hiding and fire on the triceratops. Spurts of blood fly from the dinosaur's hide, but it continues advancing on them. Tot goes, more amusement. Splendid. He spotted us, fellas. Run. Happy to. I'm better when I move anyway. Y'all ready? One, two, three. All three of these old West sharpshooters fire and pierce Tock's shoulder armor, and that was apparently the correct thing to do. <laughs> My chronometer! <laughs> At that moment, Hulk is tearing apart the mine. Chasing the banner bot in an absolute fury. It's starting to work. The whole mine is quaking. Wait. Hulk's time stream armor. 
Yes, it does look very silly. That, that, that is what he was going to say, right? I was hoping that somebody would say it. I've been thinking yeah, the whole point time. That out. Yeah. <laughs> no, the radiation's tearing into it, causing it to go haywire. If it malfunctions, we'll be stranded here. Hulk, you've got to jump. Jump with all your might. Doc Balthazar shimmers and then kind of fades away in a pink glow. What have you primitives done to me? Batterbot says, Jump! And Hulk indeed jumps with all of his might. He busts out the side of the mine, freeing himself from the heavy time radiation. And he collapses the mine in the process, so good job. Beautiful. In Hulk versus Mountain, never bet on Mountain. Yeah, but like I said earlier, I am a gambling addict, so uh, double or nothing? Let's do that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Telescopic lenses verify that Tox defeated, and what's left of the mine is imploding in Hulk's wake. We won, but the ore triggered the time rift tech in his suit, and it's too irradiated to function. They vanish in a shimmering and very convenient flash of light. The Western Posse see this happen from a distance. Right, kid says, well, we beat the devil. Is that the green fella? It was, but it looks to me like it just winked out the same way he winked in. Whoever that monster man was, we never got a chance to thank him. Yeah, well, writing endings is difficult, okay? You know, right? we do the best we can. <laughs> uh, the Hulk and Bannerbot wink back into existence in some low room. Hulk smashes through a table a round table, and there's a familiar king and some knights there who draw their swords. Did it work? Are we lost forever in the time stream, or what fresh beast? One of the knights goes, Odds blood, what fresh beast? And the black knight says, To arms, men, whoe'er this stranger be, he shall bow before the black knight and the knight exiles of lost Camelot. Batterbot narrates, We made it. We, hang on, did he just say, Lost Camelot. Next, to save an empire. Boom, boom, boom. Mm-hmm. And that is the conclusion of Indestructible Hulk number 12. But it's not the end of the story. No. So, uh, let's, let's take a look at what happened here. The Hulk and the Bruce Bannerbot team up with the wizard Merlin and the Knights of the Round Table to take Camelot back from the Chronarchist. <laughs> Uh, I got it right that well, time. Uh, well, I uh, only the fifth time we can get it right. That's, <laughs> That's true. Uh, now, they do, but in the end, Hulk is speaking all intelligently. Bruce Bott realizes that another chronarchist is tampering with the Hulk at some point in time. His digital memories are racing at an alarming speed. Bruce Bannerbot and the Hulk race through the time stream to the moment that the Hulk, well, became the Hulk. This, of course, was in Incredible Hulk number one, May 1962 cover date by Lee and Kirby. Things go normally at first. Dr. Banner shoves Rick Jones into a trench moments before the experimental gamma bomb blast. But then the Hulk shoves Banner out of the way and takes a double dose of radiation, becoming Super Hulk. Sure, that's how that works. Why not? I think so. I think so. Uh, his memories reformatting, Bannerbot transfers his knowledge up to our present day into an unconscious Banner from the past. When Dr. Banner awakes, he's pleased with this turn of events. Now, the world has its stupid Hulk to hunt or exploit or whatever, and Bruce has his life where he can marry Betty Ross. Then her dad says he doesn't have a daughter named Betty, and Bruce realizes this reality is too imperfect to survive. Once again, Mm -hmm. a Marvel character cannot be with the woman he loves 
and so will ruin the world. Every change time. It. Every time. Uh, a whole lot of confusing time jumping happens where characters come in conflict with their alternate selves. Ultimately, everything is back the way it was. The Chronarchist defeated. Though Bruce can't help feel that something has changed from the original status, he just can't figure out what. And right around this time, the Indestructible Hulk, along with every other Marvel title, was dragged into an event called Inhumanity. Attilan was destroyed, and his Terrigen mist covered the Earth, instantly mutating a bunch of new Inhumans and making Thanksgiving dinner really awkward. You didn't just say mutating, did oh, you? Oh, whoops, sorry. No, you, you clearly meant genetically right, modifying, right, right, because yeah. at this point in time, there is no mutating, mutating no mutants. Anywhere in Marvel Comics, and uh, the mere mention of them could get you shipped off to Striker Island there. That changed uh, just recently. We can we can say it again, but not in, not for these old comics. It's true. Uh, now, one of Banner's cherished assistants turns into an inhuman monster that leeches anger. And so, probably make a pretty formidable foe for the Hulk. Uh, they do wind up making knives, though, and together they save the day. Then, Banner tells his assistants to scram and hide out at a secret laboratory that's been already set up, so they'll be out from under the purview of S.H.I.E.L.D. Bruce tells Maria Hill that they went rogue and he doesn't know where they went. Maria uh, warns Banner that his recklessness could get him terminated. Literally. To which Banner laughs and walks away. Uh, that evening, Bruce Banner is on is in his S.H.I.E.L.D. laboratory, writing in his journal about secret things he probably shouldn't be writing down. <laughs> why, why write these things? It's so crazy. <laughs> but, uh, when someone in shadow sneaks up behind him, places a gun to the back of his head, and fires twice. Bruce Banner falls onto his desk, seemingly dead. Oh, and what happens next is... The Marvel Universe rebooted. Uh, oh, man. Woo. It's been this, a couple months. This story did continue in Hulk Volume 3, Number 1, and we'll tell you about it if we ever get to reading that run. Uh, the final issue of The Indestructible Hulk was Number 20 with a May 2014 cover date. Now, uh, just to talk a little bit about the uh, logistics of using a Hulk as a weapon... Hmm. Uh, this is actually a thing that uh, Old Norse people used to do In uh, Old Norse written history Berserkers were said to have fought in a trance-like fury A characteristic which was later, which would later give rise to the modern English word Berserk The Old Norse words berserker, plural berserkir Possibly translate to bear shirt A guy so tough he wore a bear's hide for a shirt <laughs> Others believe the bear in this case meant bear naked and was meant to say these wild warriors went into battle bare-chested, which is arguably scarier than going in with a bear hide. <laughs> Still, others think the translation is bear of shield, meaning the berserkers engage the enemy without any defensive armor at all, which is even scarier than going in bare-chested. It is, and they, and they all work. They all, all work them, for yeah, they uh, all doing are very here. terrifying. <laughs> now, berserkers appear pr prominently in a multitude of other sagas and poems. Uh, many earlier sagas portrayed berserkers as bodyguards, elite soldiers, and champions of kings. This image would change as time passed, and sagas would begin to describe berserkers as ravenous men who loot, plunder, and kill indiscriminately. The earliest surviving resident re reference to the term berserker is in a Baldic poem comprised by, oh boy, Thorbjorn Hornklyorfi. I'm going to say it's Thorbjorn Hornklyorfi. Him in the late ninth <laughs> century. It reads, "I'll ask of the berserks, you tasters of blood, those intrepid heroes, how are they treated? Those who wade out into battle, wolf-skinned, they are called in battle." 
They bear bloody shields. Red with blood are the spears when they come to fight. They form a closed group. The prince in his wisdom puts trust in such men who hack through enemy shields. Now, the tasters of blood in this passage are thought to be ravens who uh, did scavenge corpses on the battlefield. Yeah, not the berserkers. And by the way, we have to assume that reads better in the original Norse, right? I have a feeling. <laughs> I, I thought, I thought, I thought it was a very good performance. Pretty good, a pretty good uh, <laughs> meter there, but I think it's probably a little bit better. Uh, the Icelandic historian and poet Snorri Sturluson wrote the following description of the berserkers in his Yinglinga Saga, written around the year 1225. Norse god Odin's men rushed forwards without armor, were as mad as dogs or wolves, bit their shields and were strong as bears or wild oxen, and killed people at a blow, but neither fire nor iron told upon them. This was called Berserker Gang. Scandinavian King Harald Fairhair, who ruled from 850 to 932, used berserkers as shock troops to broaden his sphere of influence. Other Scandinavian kings used berserkers as part of their army and sometimes ranked them as equivalent to a royal bodyguard. Much has been made of the berserkers' frenzied style of battle, but stories tell of other feats. For instance, they are unable to be burned with fire, and blades and edge weapons don't work on the berserks. Clubs and blunt instruments did work somehow. They could also apparently cast spells against weapons, and uh, they'd also give people the evil eye. I think uh, a lot of people's grandmothers did that, I too. think so. My grandmother was actually kind of a berserker, so yeah, I can see this. <laughs> no, it's unknown. Uh, what exactly sent these berserkers in? into their indestructible angry state, but it's believed that a trance induced by a ritual dancing played by played a role in this, which is to say we have no idea why it happened the way they are describing it happening. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure uh, every, a lot of you people know uh, people like this in your life, or you may be that person who just doesn't back down no matter how ridiculous the odds. You ever know a guy mm -hmm. like that, Chris? Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, so I have a feeling there's you have to have that Tenacity plus probably a uh, strong uh, dose of mead. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we're going to go on to a little bit of mail. Uh, this mail was not that old when I first we first put it in the script, but uh, then we uh, we were off for two weeks. So sorry to be getting to this a little bit later than we like. But so now first, we're getting it. We're getting to it on time. In a way, we're getting to it on time. Exactly. <laughs> we're doing what we normally do. Uh, so the first one is by Cliff Berg. He wrote to us on February 17th to say, Hey guys, just a quick note to let you know I enjoy the ICP Pendulum Show. Chaos comics were a guilty pleasure of mine back in the late 90s, but I have to admit I skipped the ones associated with non-comics properties like WWF and the various music acts. This one sounds fun in a bat-spit-crazy kind of way. On a separate note, I'd like to offer an issue for consideration. World's Finest, number 271 from Volume 1. It also raises, but never really explains, the pre-crisis trope of some super beings having increased power when they move from Earth 2 to Earth 1. I have fond memories of it, and it seems like an issue suited to the cosmic treadmill treatment. Apologies if you already covered this one. Anyway, thanks for the continued deep dives into all those back issue bins. And uh, no, we haven't covered that one yet. And, not, uh, I don't think we've covered be any, delighted. any World's Finest to this we point. We have not, yeah. Uh, which is actually one of my favorite series. I know you're you're a fan of it, mm. too. Uh, I, this one, you know, it, I think we talked about doing a kind of a World's Finest 
look, a, a retro yeah. look, but this one sounds like more of a multiverse look. But whatever it is, we'll, we'll get it on the list. We'll, we'll, we'll figure yeah. it out what we want mm -hmm. to do. And uh, thanks. I, you know, the ICP books, I have to say, uh, I think even Toby, who recommended them, knew that we were going to go into them as kind of a uh, a laugh for us. But uh, <laughs> it's it's been an, it's been an interesting, eye-opening look at a culture at a at, sure. at juggalos and you know f so far the research that we've done we're talking about a totally innocuous uh pleasant group of young people as far as i can tell for the most sure part. but uh thanks a lot for that next we have our old buddy and pal jeremiah jones goldstein who wrote on february 20th this one is more just to me so uh, he says reggie i was blown away by the piece you read your latest podcast about the cartoonist living in fairfield county that was at uh reggie's comic stories episode six i think uh the article was a fascinating essay you read it very well i loved it for two reasons the first is that i love comic strips as a kid, I would read them and cut them out. I would buy the reprint books from the school book club. Every year, I have at least two day-by-day -day calendars based on comic strips. I've never really stopped reading them, and even now, I subscribe to comics.com and read the Sunday strips in the Boston Globe. The second reason is that I grew up in Stanford in an unconventional household. I'm the older of two boys, and our parents were Methodist ministers. My brother and I grew up in a close community of people from our church, similar to children of those amazing cartoonists. There were fewer Manhattans and less golfing, though I'm going to have to check out Mr. Cullen's book. It sounds excellent. It was really a great choice for an episode. And thanks. I don't know if you heard that one, but it's a, uh, a book called Cartoon County, and it's about a, an area in Connecticut that, like, a dozen comic strip cartoonists just happened to live at one time. How about uh, that? It, it, it really is interesting story. The article is good. The book is pretty good. It's a little dry, but mm -hmm. the information is there. But Chris, I'm wondering, were you a fan or are you a fan of comic strips? I, I did read them. Uh, I, I actually go to a, I've got a site bookmarked, uh, the Comics Curmudgeon. It's, uh, uh, oh, right. I know fella, yeah, yeah. Josh Furlinger, Furlinger, or something like that. Yeah. He, uh, where he, 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 he 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 does a funny haha with them, but right. uh, it's still neat to see them and still neat to follow them. Um, but I did grow up reading because I was a Newsday family. Yeah. We were so a Newsday family. Yeah, the color uh, funnies but we, every day. But we didn't have Spider Man. Oh, Spider Man was Daily News. Was, so right. uh, in Newsday, we didn't have Spider Man, but you know we did, of course, have Garfield and Peanuts and, and Mama for a long yeah. time. <laughs> and the Wizard of Id. Oh, good time. <laughs> No, I, I always had a good time reading them, I, and, I, and I still read them a few times a week at uh, Josh's site. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't kept up with – when I go to my in-laws and they get the Washington Post on weekends, <laughs> I'll read the funnies there. Sure. And I got to tell you, Chris, it's not really uh... – Yeah, they're they're more of a comfort food at this point. It is. Because, I mean, we're reading uh, – this week is the last week uh, of a new Spider-Man because oh, really? they're they're getting to the end of uh, Stan's uh oh, uh, right, right, script. Yeah. Right, right. So uh that's going away. Uh, I think it I think it's going to come back at some point they say but you we hear that a lot in comics uh both in the newspaper and in uh yeah. in, in the shops. So who knows? Who knows what form it will take when it comes back. Anyway, I'm just, <laughs> we we have talked about doing an, an episode on comic strips although that is oh, such yeah. a huge topic. It's going to be a biggie, yeah. We'll see when and whatever happens. Because <laughs> we were even talking about doing the, the Bazooka Joe comics and oh, yeah. the, the, all the gum comics. So, yeah, there's, it ain't just going to be, you know, saddle staple stuff we're going to talk about. No, so. we, we, we have eyes on a lot of different things for sure. Indeed, indeed. Now, our last letter is from Billy Dunleavy. He's uh, at 
Billy D. I should have his Twitter handle. It's right down here. It's uh, at. Oh, it is. There it is. Billy D underscore Licious. So Billy Delicious. Yeah. Now, he wrote to us on February 25th, and he says, Hey, guys, I I just wanted to say the show has been great as usual. The last two in particular have been interesting, and how you got through them and kept your sanity is beyond me. (laughs) ICP Comics and early 2000s Quesada Gemis Marvel are two things I couldn't care less about, but listening to you guys suffer through them was a blast. And he's talking about the uh, Brotherhood issue. Oh, right, right, okay, yeah. He says, I could go on all day about my my disdain for that era of Marvel, but I'll spare you guys. Well, we, we shared a lot of ours. Uh, <laughs> Today, in keep, fact. Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Keep up the great work and the solo podcasts as well, as they're unique and engaging shows that really set you guys apart from the rest of the podcasting pack. Take care. Your Twitter friend, Doc Strange, a.k.a. Billy D underscore Licious. Yeah, thanks very much, Billy. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's, I, I'm, I'm glad that these... Uh... Issues resonate with people. You know, we would do them anyway. The uh, weirdos, we'll call them. I don't know. Sure, <laughs> the weirdo books. I, I mean, you know, it's 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 no big secret that when we do a '90s comic, there's a much bigger response than when we do ICP. But sure, you know, our hope is to cover everything over time. So mm-hmm. uh, you're never you're never going to just get the big name comics. You're always going to get uh, the side pieces eventually. Sure. But if you have want to write to us and eventually get read on the show at some point, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about the indestructible Hulk, Mark Wade, anything. You want to talk about time travel? You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon if you like what we do and you want to get three exclusive shows per month, plus an enamel pin that you can wear proudly. Uh, mm-hmm. Go to patreon.com slash Reggie. Chip in five bucks or more and you are in like Flynn. Indeed. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic T-mail history. You can also follow us on Instagram at cosmic T-mail. We're on Twitter at cosmic T-mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. <clears throat> uh, you can see our weekly reviews for DC Comics at weirdsidesdccomics.com <laughs> and Chris's daily reviews lately of Action Weekly uh, mm-hmm. on com. He's got a huge backlist of... Uh, DC Comics issues from throughout their 80-plus year history now? 80-ish, uh, yeah. Well, I don't mm-hmm. think he did too many that were 80-plus years old. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> Just one. <laughs> you, you know, he, did, he did do uh, that old one. Action number one. Action yeah. one. But, uh, yeah, you got to go check it out. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. The last, I don't know, now six, seven weeks, you've been breaking down an issue of Action Comics weekly per week. Yep, And uh, I, I really think this is an amazing resource. If you've never read it, or if you read it and forgot it, go check it out. You uh, you really can't miss it. Fingers, fingers crossed. I, <laughs> it's, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. The response hasn't been as grand as I'd hoped, but maybe eventually. Over time. You're looking at it over time, the long <laughs> game, <true>. Chris. <laughs> you can uh, check out the show site, chrisandreggie.com, where you'll find all of our show notes, all of our recordings, and a chronological listing of all of the programs, uh, the solo shows, uh, our side shows. We're currently doing a uh, compilation of our discussions of the Sandman Universe yep. books that are currently coming out. So those are coming out every Thursday, and they are on the site as well in the order that you'd want to listen to them in. Uh, and while you're there, you can click on the banner, uh, the banner ad for uh, 80stees.com. Uh, you help them out, you help us out, buy yourself a shirt, and uh, everything be good. 
And uh, before we jam, we want to sp- send another thanks to Alex Martin for this comic suggestion. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Thanks very much. This is, a, this is a book that we've both read and we both would read, but it, it's like a very random book it, that, yeah. uh, that probably wouldn't have gotten a, an episode devoted to it uh, if not for the request. And it really led to some interesting conversations. So, it did. It did. So and, thanks, and it kind Alex. of illuminated a, uh, a more recent time in Marvel, but. For sure. One that's worth talking about. And, uh, you know, the series wasn't terrible. I got to ask, though, Alex, if you'd let us know why you picked this one. We're just curious. <laughs> we're just curious. Is it because you wanted us to do the Western voices? We're not, we don't really know. Uh, but, uh, but we did have a good time with it. So yes. thank, thank you very much. Uh, I think that's all we got from this week, though, Chris. Got anything else for him? Nah, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill, current architecturally. See ya. Because what don't kill you should make you stronger. So my problems is like steroids, boy. I get my doses from all 